It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem. At issue is whether Alabama violated the Voting Rights Act by drawing its congressional map in a way that ensures the state will have just one black representative for the next decade. And Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson pushed back on the suggestion that redistricting needs to be done in a race-neutral way, pointing out that the framers adopted the post-Civil War amendments to the Constitution in a race-conscious way. They were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against, the freedmen, um, in during the Reconstruction period, uh, were actually... Uh, 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 brought equal to everyone else in the society. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Hassan, a professor at UCLA Law School. So, Rick, Alabama is 27 percent black, but the Republican legislature drew only one majority black voting district out of seven. And a three-judge panel said Alabama was probably violating the Voting Rights Act. So what's the issue here? So the Voting Rights Act requires that under certain conditions, basically when there are large populations of minority voters and white voters and minority voters tend to vote for different candidates, it's possible that the Voting Rights Act requires the drawing of a district to give those minority voters a chance to get representation. In the Alabama case, a three-judge court held that although Alabama had one congressional district where minority voters could elect a candidate of choice, they were entitled to a second one, given the size of their population, where their population was, and the continued racially polarized voting in the state of Alabama. The fact that the Supreme Court stepped in and allowed Alabama to keep its map for the primaries, Justice Kagan called it clear vote dilution. Do you see that as the court tipping its hand here? Well, back when the court decided to put this ruling on hold, that was a pretty good indication that a majority of the court's justices thought that Alabama was likely to win. In fact, Chief Justice Roberts, who is not always the most friendly to voting rights plaintiffs, dissented from that order back last spring because he said that under existing law, it looks like Alabama should win. So the question really is whether or not the court is ready to tweak or more radically change understanding of how the Voting Rights Act works. 
If it does so in this case, depending on how it does so, it could have small implications or very large implications for minority representation in the Congress as well as in state and local legislatures. What was the main focus of the oral arguments? Well, Alabama advanced a number of different arguments. Their most radical argument would essentially rework Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And there was little appetite on the court for issuing an opinion that would overturn decades of precedent and have a whole new approach to the Voting Rights Act. But there was much more interest, at least among some of the conservative justices, especially Justice Alito, in tweaking the existing standards in a way that would make it look like the court is continuing with its application of existing law, but actually changes the standards enough to make it easier for states to win and harder for minority voters to win. The real question is whether or not the other justices would be willing to go along with Justice Alito. Justice Jackson seemed to dominate the arguments. Well, Justice Jackson, even though this was only her second day of oral arguments on the Supreme Court, came out of the box very well prepared and extremely aggressive in countering what Justice Alito was trying to do. So Justice Alito was trying to find a way to reinterpret the standards that apply to Section 2. And Justice Jackson's main point was that Justice Alito's approach is inconsistent with the text of Section 2. It's inconsistent with the precedent that's applied Section 2. And there's no constitutional reason. I thought it was particularly notable that on the constitutional point, Justice Jackson went back to the original understanding of the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which provide the basis for Congress to act to pass the Voting Rights Act. And I saw that as an appeal to some of the justices who are originalists on the court, care about the original meaning. And what she was trying to argue is, that the Voting Rights Act, as it's been understood, is very much in line with what those who passed the 14th Amendment thought could happen, which is that there could be race-conscious laws that could be passed to provide protection for members of our society who faced past discrimination. What about some of the conservatives that might be closer to the middle of the court? Did they propose anything different, a different solution? Did they seem to agree with Justice Alito or Justice Jackson? So both Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett mostly asked clarifying questions in order to understand what it was exactly that Alabama was arguing, what it was that the plaintiffs were contending has to be done under the existing law. They didn't really tip their hand very much. But I'm reminded of the oral argument in a case called Brnovich, which the Supreme Court decided a year ago last July. During the oral arguments of that case, which also involved the same statute, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, but not in the redistricting context, at oral argument, both of those justices seemed kind of open to arguments on both sides. But in the end, they coalesced behind Justice Alito's opinion, which was a very hostile opinion to voting rights plaintiffs. And so if that pattern holds this time, we're likely to see a significant weakening of the Voting Rights Act. Now, nothing is set in stone. You really can't predict anything from oral argument questions with any kind of certainty. They seemed open-minded, but it's not clear that that open-mindedness will prevail by the time the case gets decided sometime later this year or more likely next year. Did uh, Justice Thomas say anything of noteworthy? Justice Thomas asked a few questions. Justice Gorsuch didn't. They've both taken the point of view that the Voting Rights Act Section 2, as a matter of statutory interpretation, does not even apply to redistricting. And so they are not likely to be votes uh, to uh, side with the plaintiffs in saying that there's a Voting Rights Act violation here. 
And the chief, the fact that he joined the liberals in dissent on the shadow docket case, does that indicate he might side with the liberals again here? Well, what he said was, uh, I uh, think that under existing law, the plaintiff should win, but I'm open to rethinking existing law. So I don't think we can read all that much into it from his vote in the stay uh, question earlier this year. You refer to it over the last decade, the Supreme Court has already weakened the Voting Rights Act. So is there any chance that this case will be different or will they just continue on the road they've been on? So there is certainly a history of the court being hostile to the Voting Rights Act. There was the 2013 case, Shelby County versus Holder, that essentially killed off a major provision of the Voting Rights Act known as Section 5. There was the Brnovich case that held that Section 2 doesn't have a lot of teeth outside of the redistricting context. There are also some other decisions, including a decision a few years ago written by Justice Alito called Abbott versus Perez, case out of Texas, which also weakened the understanding of the Voting Rights Act. So if that pattern holds up, I don't think it's going to be good news for minority voters. I think the real question is not there's a good chance that plaintiffs lose. We already know from them taking the case and issuing a stay that that's likely to happen. It's how they lose and how bad it's going to be. The three-judge district court ruling that agreed that Alabama's map likely violated the Voting Rights Act, did that court follow precedent and, you know, was its decision in line with prior cases? I think that decision very much followed precedent. In fact, Chief Justice Roberts, in dissenting from the court's issuing of a stay last spring, said uh, that much. I think it's notable that the panel, the three-judge courts, two of the judges on that court were appointed by President Trump. So this was not you know, a panel made up of Democratic-appointed judges who might have a different viewpoint on the reading of the act than, say, the conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Really, the question is not whether or not the plaintiffs win under existing precedent. I think that's an easy case that they do. The question is whether the court's going to change the standard. I want to get your take on another redistricting case the court is going to be hearing later in the term. It involves the North Carolina map, and it will test the power of state courts to invalidate congressional maps as too partisan with this controversial doctrine called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine. And some elections law experts say that if the court adopts that doctrine, it could wreak havoc on elections across the country. I'm actually filing an amicus brief in the case. So I think that uh, if the court adopts the kind of expansive arguments that the plaintiffs have made in that case, it is going to vastly increase the amount of election litigation in courts. It's going to give uh, every state court decision interpreting um, a state election law that applies in a federal election and every state and local agency decision applied to a federal election a chance to become a federal lawsuit that could potentially pit federal courts against state courts. And I think ultimately, if the court rules the way that the uh, Republican legislators want uh, in uh, the the North Carolina case uh, that it's going to undermine voter confidence in both the electoral process and in the courts. Thanks so much for your insights, Rick. That's Professor Richard Hassan of UCLA Law School. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We'll hear argument next in case 21432, Arayano versus McDonough. Mr. Barney. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. And with that, James Barney made his debut at the Supreme Court. A former naval officer arguing on behalf of fellow veteran Adolfo Ariano, who suffers from severe mental health conditions, including PTSD, following an aircraft carrier collision. They're challenging an appellate court ruling that said the veteran can't get around the one-year deadline for filing for retroactive benefits. And James Barney joins me now. James, tell us about your client. Sure. My client is uh, Adolfo Ariano. He was a Navy veteran who served aboard an aircraft carrier back in the late 70s and suffered a very traumatic event when that aircraft carrier collided with a freighter. He was nearly swept overboard. He was working on the flight deck, observed several of his shipmates being injured and killed. And when he was discharged from the Navy a year or so later, he really had some traumatic disabilities because of that. And that really is the focus of our case. He was lucky in the sense that his brother was able to eventually take over his affairs, in other words, become his guardian. And it really was his brother that was able to get Mr. Ariano to file a claim for his disabilities with the VA. But unfortunately, by the time he did so, many years had passed and Mr. Ariano had already been suffering from these very severe mental disabilities. And does this happen often that a veteran you know, misses the time when he or she can file? Don't the services tell you what you have to do as you leave? Yes, but unfortunately that doesn't always happen. 
when veterans leave the service, it's a very tumultuous time in their lives. Some of these veterans have really known nothing else in their adult lives other than the military. And so it becomes their community, it becomes their life, and leaving the military, even if you don't have disabilities, leaving the military is a very tumultuous and sometimes somewhat traumatic process as you're trying to make that transition to civilian life. If you add into that a veteran who's suffering from very significant injuries, so we're talking about traumatic brain injuries, we're talking about PTSD. Unfortunately, there's a a number of veterans who suffer from the effects of what they call military sexual trauma, and these can be debilitating. And so on top of this tumultuous life change that's taking place, they're suffering from these disabilities. And does the VA always tell the veteran all of the things they need to do to file for benefits? They're supposed to, but I don't think it happens all the time. Or if it does happen, it happens in such a flurry of other activity that the veteran doesn't really understand what's happening. The veterans are not represented by counsel at this point, so they're really just on their own. And unfortunately, many of them do miss this one-year filing deadline that's at issue in this case. The circuit court ruled against your client. Why do you think the Supreme Court took your case? Is it a good sign that perhaps they want to reverse the circuit court? Well, I think so. Um, (laughs) I think they took the case because it's an important issue. It really has to do with fairness. There was a case about 30 years ago called Irwin. And what the Irwin case held, this is a Supreme Court case, was that people who have claims against the government, like benefits claims, should be treated the same way as litigants in private litigation with respect to this issue of whether you can equitably toll or, in other words, forgive a missed deadline. Most people in civil litigation who have a claim against a private party, if they miss a deadline, they can actually request it to be told. And what the Supreme Court said in Irwin was there should be no difference between that and when a person is suing the government or seeking a claim against the government. And yet, despite that, the Federal Circuit had for many years ruled that veterans simply are not able to take advantage of that. They basically said veterans are somehow different. And we did not think that was fair. At the Supreme Court oral arguments, what was the toughest question you got? Uh, The one that I wasn't quite prepared for was Justice Jackson asked me a question about statutes of limitations, and she used an analogy in her view that statutes of limitations were sort of like funnels. And I was struggling a little bit with that analogy, but I got through it, and I think I answered her question in a way that satisfied her. Other than that, most of the questions we expected. There are difficult legal issues here, and so some of these questions got far into the weeds of doctrines like equitable tolling and so forth. But most of them I felt were um, expected and I thought I was able to answer them satisfactorily. So the government isn't even conceding that this is a statute of limitations. Uh, The Solicitor General argued this statute, it doesn't walk or quack like a statute of limitations and it doesn't function as one either. Is that the toughest part of your argument? Well, I don't think so. Um, I thought that was the easiest part of our (laughs) argument. I think this is very clearly a statute of limitations, and I don't think that Justice Kagan really appreciated that particular answer because she pushed back on the government on that point. The issue here is Congress has set forth a one-year time limit in order to qualify for these retroactive disability benefits, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that that operates like a statute of limitations. The Chief Justice pointed out that this is an agency, the VA, that supports disabled veterans and not an agency with rigid rules like the IRS. Does that give you hope? It does give me hope, and the Chief Justice was exactly correct there. This doctrine of equitable tolling, believe it or not, 
has actually been applied to allow the IRS to benefit from this doctrine of equitable tolling in order to extend or to forgive deadlines that they missed. And it would be an odd result to think that the IRS can benefit from this equitable principle, and yet service-disabled veterans cannot. And I think that was the point that Justice Roberts was getting to. You've done many appellate arguments before, never before the Supreme Court. How different was it? Was it different? Well, it was certainly a new experience and a humbling experience, I must say. To some extent, it's not different. Uh, I've done arguments in front of the Federal Circuit, which is also a very impressive group of judges who ask very tough questions. I've even done en banc arguments in front of the Federal Circuit, including the one that preceded this uh, Supreme Court uh, petition. And there you're dealing with 12 judges. So in one sense, going from 12 to 9 uh, is a little, a little bit easier. But the Supreme Court is, is really just special, and uh, it's just hard not to feel awed by the experience. Did you get a feel for how the court might rule, which justices were clearly for you, which against? I've learned over the years never to try to predict how, the, how a court is going to rule. I thought the questions that, that I received were fair. They were the types of questions that I was expecting to get. Some of them were tough questions, but I think we had answers to all of them. I felt that they were also tough on the government, and I didn't think that all of the secretary's answers to their questions were, were satisfactory. He didn't have a good answer for um, Justice Roberts' question about why we should be so strict in interpreting these rules in a, in a statute that is there to benefit disabled veterans, and also did not have a good answer when Justice Alito asked about this group called the Edgewood Veterans. And that's a group of veterans that has a very, very compelling claim that their missed deadlines should be forgiven. And I don't think the government's answer there was very satisfactory. Does it seem strange to you that the government, you know, in this age where veterans are so much at the forefront and concerns about veterans, that the government would take this stance even? I'm not surprised, you know, to be fair, the government, you know, one of the things the government is, is looking out for is that there is not a floodgate problem. In other words, that if we, if we allow this type of um, uh, tolling of these deadlines, these statutes of limitations, they have to be concerned with, are we going to create a situation where the amount of payments that we have to pay out to these veterans really exceeds the amount that Congress has authorized? And that actually did come up at the um, argument. And I was able to explain, I, I think, to their satisfaction that we don't think this will cause a floodgate problem. The type of tolling that we're asking for here, which is called equitable tolling, is only used sparingly. It's not something that's going to apply to every single case. But when it does apply, in other words, when you have a veteran or really any individual who truly does have a good reason why they missed the deadline, well, then it ought to be available. And it should be available to veterans in exactly the same way that it's available to um, private litigants in private litigation. So basically what you want is for veterans to have the same advantages that civil litigants have. Exactly. Let's say the Supreme Court turns you down. Is going to Congress an alternative Yes, that's always an alternative. Um, Obviously, that is a uh, difficult path, um, but certainly um, it would be an alternative to lobby Congress to make an explicit uh, change in the law to reflect this equitable tolling doctrine. But we really don't think that should be necessary because the decision in Irwin, again, which is going back to all the way back to 1990, really answers the question. Uh, And the answer is that these sorts of 
ordinary claims processing deadlines should be deemed tollable in extenuating, uh, you know, in special circumstances. Are there implications for veterans beyond this issue if you win this case? Well, certainly. There's going to be a group of veterans who have current claims where they have asked for equitable tolling. I mentioned the Edgewood veterans are, are one group of veterans. And so one immediate impact would be that they would now be able to go back and argue for equitable tolling, which right now they're not allowed to do because of these previous federal circuit rulings. The other effect it will have is for future veterans. You know, in other words, veterans who um, maybe are still in the military and will be getting out in the future. And those veterans will be able to benefit from equitable tolling if they have some of these extenuating circumstances and they have really good cause to extend that deadline. I just want to say that we had a lot of help along the way, and we were very grateful to receive amicus support from a lot of veterans groups, as well as AARP and and many other uh, organizations that really did a fantastic job um, supporting us as we moved this case along uh, to the Supreme Court. Was your client at the oral arguments? He was not, but I had a call with his brother immediately afterwards, and his brother was very pleased with how it went, and we all have our fingers crossed. Thanks so much for sharing your experience with us. That's James Barney, a partner at Finnegan. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.